Hi, my name is Michael Sidgmore, and I'm your host of the Let's Humanize Finance podcast, where we take you inside the minds and the visions of entrepreneurs who are changing finance. Today, I'm really excited to launch this interview series with a very special guest, someone who founded a company that is a poster child for humanizing finance. We have Pramal Shah, the co-founder and president of Kiva, on today's episode of Let's Humanize Finance podcast. Kiva has enabled over 2 million borrowers across the world to access capital and raises around $1 million per week for the working poor through their online microloan platform that has truly personalized the lender-borrower experience. Before we get into a conversation with Pramal, I just want to share a bit of background on Let's Humanize Finance. So why did we decide to launch a podcast about humanizing finance? Let's Humanize Finance is about highlighting the incredible work that fintech entrepreneurs are doing to make finance more transparent, more accessible, and more efficient. It's about enabling people, the consumers who are using these platforms and products, to have a window into the minds of the people behind the companies that are changing finance and ultimately changing people's experience with money. Finance performs basic functions that enable people to spend, save, borrow, and invest. Simply put, finance is something that people can't live without. Let's Humanize Finance is an interview series that aims to bring to life the backgrounds and aspirations of these daring entrepreneurs who are trying to change how we interact with money. Let's humanize finance so that interest isn't only deposited in the interest of the bank. Now, I'm going to give you a quick bio on Pramal, and then we'll get into the interview. So I'm incredibly excited to welcome Pramal Shah, the co-founder and president of Kiva, which was the early pioneer in online lending through its nonprofit crowdfunding platform that has lent to over 2.1 million borrowers with loan dollars in excess of $915 million. The results have been quite impressive. Their repayment rate has been over 97% on loans dispersed across 82 countries worldwide. Kiva has also created tremendous impact on a group who have, to borrow from Pramal's words, been subject to a poverty penalty because they are poor. Instead, Kiva's microloan platform has provided a hand up rather than a handout and has humanized finance by enabling lenders and borrowers to connect through personalization of the loan process. Pramal has been justifiably recognized for his work with Kiva. He's been named a young global leader by the World Economic Forum and to Fortune Magazine's Top 40 Under 40 list. Pramal has a long history of creating innovative financial solutions that impact the world. Prior to Kiva, he worked for PayPal for six years as a principal product manager during the company's formative years. Hi, Pramal. How are you today? Good, good. Good to be here. No, thanks for joining the podcast. Of course. Excited to have you on. So I know people want to hear about the founding story of Kiva, but before we get into that, I want to know, I want people to know who you really are before we get into anything about work. So first, you know, I've heard that you perform some pretty interesting dance moves. Mm. So what's your, uh, what's your favorite dance move? Yeah, well, um, I think it, I'm, I'm kind of, um, I've, I've retired from this move, but the worm was something that um, I would bust out. And um, typically at the Kiva holiday party, people will still chant, worm, worm, <laughs> worm. And every year I'm like, nope, not going to do it, not going to do it. And then somehow I just kind of break down. And last year I hurt my chin, actually. Um, so for real, this time I've retired from doing the worm. I'm going to kind of stick to um, kind of uh, uh, less... Uh, uh, less intense moves. So th- there's no way we can get you to do the worm at the end of this <laughs> maybe, podcast. Maybe, huh? maybe, yeah. You know, maybe <laughs> you can start chanting right now for the next 40 minutes and it'll break down. <laughs> oh, great. Well, that, that's fantastic. So um, w- what does your weekend look like? You know, maybe it includes the worm, maybe it doesn't, but what does a typical yeah. weekend for you look like? Yeah, the days of the worm are long gone. So now I just became a dad uh, about 15 months ago. So I'm spending a lot of time really um, kind of getting into um, the beauty that is fatherhood. It's really cool. Um, you know, they say that like your, your company is your baby, but actually your company is a company and your baby is a baby. And it's very different in some really special ways. Of course, there's just still kind of a, an, an insane level of attachment. It's like your heart outside of yourself, but I've just really enjoyed watching, um, you know, our daughter Simi grow. So we're, we're trying to just kind of have as much fun with her, spend as much time as we can and I'm just a big um, believer in uh, being outdoors. Um, kind of one, one thing that a friend told me was that our goal in life should be to go from normal to natural. Um, and if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. So there are a lot of things that we do because, you know, the norms in society just kind of make us do it. And 
I think there's a lot of wisdom in, in kind of what's naturally occurring out there. And one way to kind of tap into that is just to get outside of the four walls and into the outdoors and have that communion with nature. So between family and nature, that's kind of what you're going to find me doing on, on the weekends is just kind of maximizing as much time uh, with, with those two things. And you're in a great place for that too in San yeah, Francisco. Yeah, which is fantastic. Well, congratulations on becoming a father. Thanks. Um, that's fantastic. And, and I guess first question is how, how has becoming a father changed your perspective on how you run a company, if, if it has at all? Yeah. You know, I think... Um, it's certainly helped me think much more intergenerationally about well-being. Um, I think, you know, in the beginning of Kiva, um, I had a sign up that said, if, if you don't work, nothing will. And I really believed that, like, it was all about the hustle and, like, um, uh, you know, just kind of moving as fast as we could. And I think to a degree that that is true because... Um, there's so much risk, execution risk in the beginning. But now, you know, it's not about kind of getting keep off the ground, but it's really making an enduring public good that can help as many people who are underserved as possible. And that's just a different mentality. Um, that's where I think a bit more patience and wisdom is required. And being a dad and kind of thinking about, you know, not only my lifetime, but my daughter Simi's lifetime and maybe my grandchildren's lifetime. Like, what is the world that we want? What is the future that we want to help? shape. And a lot of the things that really um, are worth building take a lot of time and can be very slow going and pretty incremental. And at first, um, you know, when I was trying to kind of get things done on my own time frame, like we want to hit this goal by this time, um, you know, I I had a lot of energy around it. And now I'm just more paced and more marathon like about um, creating something that's enduring and built to last. And so I, I don't know if this is going to make sense, but I've shifted from a frame of like fast to craftsmanship as being really important and really telling the team here that, you know, what, it's important that we do things with really high quality, um, that we don't cut corners, that we, um, you know, we can still be doing a number of experiments, but just um, I'd like to kind of do just be more thoughtful um, uh, and, 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 and long-term in our thinking and in our actions here at Kiva. And that's, that's probably, I think, the influence of just being a parent and thinking intergenerationally now has, has kind of come into play in that. And then how has that also trickled down to the culture of the team, which by, by relation to that would also trickle down to the customers you serve? Yeah, so, you know, I think, um, well, one is uh, there's this great, great term called moral imagination um, that that a number of folks have talked about, but it's really trying to imagine the world that you want. And, and it's important for me that the team is really creating, creating a little space in their week to just imagine, you know, what it is that we're actually trying to do. And if we're successful, um, you know, what the world could really be like. Much more fair financial access. Like, it's a really important... You were just saying, Michael, at the, at the beginning of the show, you know, financial services are absolutely essential to make life work well. And there's so many people, 2.5 billion people on the planet, who lack basic access. And we have a system that it's not going to do it alone, but it can certainly help accelerate us to a world where everyone has access and the cost of that access... You know, whether you're paying right now 35% of on, on, on interest um, and a microcredit loan or here in the U.S. for every dollar the working poor uh, earn, they're spending about 10 cents in financial services fees. Um, that's as much as they spend on food. Like there really is an opportunity right now for those of us who are working in technology to imagine a much better world. And, and so kind of reminding the team that you know, this isn't just kind of mundane refactoring of the code base. This isn't a mundane activity and um, you know, f- figuring out this HR policy. This is a very exciting set of activities that we're doing in service to something that is such a better future. And I think that's that's something that um, I'm trying to bring back to the team. Is just kind of have us be awake to all the power we have right now to create a substantially better future than the default path. Yeah, interesting. So, so you mentioned kind of about the team really understanding what it means to actually affect people's lives through finance. How did you start Kiva? What's the founding story? 
Yeah. So, you know, for me, um, my parents uh, are from India. Uh, and on our first trip back when I was five years old, um, just immediately when you get off the plane, you realize how different it is than the suburbs of, in my case, Minnesota. And um, I was struck by the richness of the culture, but also just the sheer levels of destitution and poverty and realizing that, you know, had I been born um, to another family uh, uh, in, in India, as opposed to my own family, my set of opportunities, my well-being would have been completely different. Uh, my brother, sister and I had just access to all the basics that a kid would need to thrive. And so I felt very privileged pretty early on. I, I knew it. I didn't know this this language, you know, how to describe it, but it kind of shamed a moral kind of a, a moral sense that first trip of why is there so much suffering or so much on injustice on the world in the world? Because that's really what poverty is, is injustice. And 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 then, you know, since that 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 first trip and several trips back, it was something that I knew I wanted to do something about, but I didn't know what that was. And luckily in college I had a professor um, I was an econ major, uh, and and he started talking about microfinance. This is back in 1996, 10 years before Muhammad Yunus would go on to win the Nobel Peace Prize for his work in uh, pioneering microcredit. Um, but the idea of providing small loans to people who the banks would say no to, um, and you know maybe doing it in a group guarantee format so that the loan repayment rate is high, um, it's been, it's really spread across the planet and has created access to opportunity at much lower interest rates than what people would typically pay to say a village moneylender, um, and so this idea of kind of microfinance being you know a bottoms up scalable way to give people the access to tools that they could then you know manage their own complex financial lives and ideally maybe buy a productive asset like a cow or a sewing machine and start earning more income. And maybe earning their way out of poverty. That was very exciting to me in college. And then after college, I worked at PayPal uh, for six years. And that was just an extraordinary experience. And wow, like today, complete strangers, you know, can buy from each other on eBay, which is where PayPal was most useful in the early days. That's really where we got our traction. And, you know, to think that you, you know, like right now, one every, once every 30 seconds, a car is bought on eBay um, from a complete stranger. Um, it was really the combination of, you know, if you can create a marketplace that is um, built on trust, you know, that has a trust mechanism, strangers will trade with one another. Well, strangers will trade with one another. Is there a way to actually have strangers invest in one another, do micro lending to one another across wealth and geographic divides? So it's really kind of being at PayPal thinking, is there a way to use this PayPal platform for micro lending, not just, you know, buying something on eBay or e-commerce site? Luckily enough, because I had been there for about five years, um, um, the the executives over there, um, and by that time we'd been bought by eBay, um, Pierre Amidiar, who was incredibly philanthropic, um, uh, the chair, Meg Whitman at the time, a, a number of folks kind of said, hey, look, why don't you go off to India um, and you know explore eBay Inc.'s role in economically empowering the poor? And they had the assets of PayPal, eBay, and Skype. Sure, a lot of great assets if you think about, you know, what those tools might do to bring more opportunity to those people who are left out. Um, I was really excited about, um, you know, this notion of, you know, cross-border P2P lending. Um, and um, after about a year of exploration at eBay, um, you know, I tried to launch a project. It took a while to get off the ground, but on the side... Um, I met two other people in Palo Alto who were doing something very similar, Matt and Jessica Flannery, uh, who had a small prototype website called Kiva. And when we first met, we realized we're trying to do the same thing, um, just kind of from different resource bases. You know, I had this big company, eBay, and I was trying to do, kind of bring all these executives along and was doing a lot of PowerPoint, really. And Matt, who was working at TiVo, he was a coder. He was actually just building a prototype website, which now we know is like the right thing to do. Just get out an MVP. But back then, you know, I thought kind of PowerPoint was the way to go. Um, and it was pretty useless in the end, but it did sharpen kind of, um, kind of the thinking around like, how would we scale a cross-border website that allows human beings to invest in human beings across wealth and geographic divides? And kind of soon after realizing that, you know, I was going to make much progress within the confines of being an eBay Inc. employee, I quit my job at eBay. Matt quit his job at TiVo. We both started working at Kiva full time. We co-led it for the last 10 years. 
he recently left, but, you know, um, it's been this journey of kind of trying to create this, you know, unleash a correct idea, you know, um, one where if we're all going to be connected in our lifetime, um, is there a way that we can be a part of each other's stories in a way that's based on mutual dignity? That's great. That's a fantastic founding story. And, and just, you know, you were part of the kind of PayPal, the early days at PayPal with some incredible employees, right? Names that many people know, Peter Thiel, Reid Hoffman, Elon Musk, Dave McClure, Ken Howery, the list goes on and on. I'm, I'm probably left out plenty of people. Um, you know, how, how did your time at PayPal and, and then eBay as well, another incredible place, how did those places shape what you're doing today at Kiva? Well, I think um, PayPal was a really early. PayPal was a very special culture. Um, uh, these 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 um, colleagues, my colleagues, were, um, um, you know, one. Uh, there's a big contrarian um, uh, kind of uh, streak within the company. Um, we honestly believed um, in you know, our own thinking, oftentimes more than conventional wisdom or what the banks would say is feasible. Um, perhaps there's a bit of naivete, but, um, you know, I, th- I think it's, it's you know, Peter says, what's the difference between a culture and a cult? Um, well, both a really strong culture and a cult believe in something really, like, you know, ferociously that no one else really believes in, um, except that with a cult, usually you're believing in something that isn't true. And with a great culture, you're believing in something that even if the rest of the world doesn't believe it, it is actually true. Um, And I think, you know, we just saw something in the early days, um, an opportunity, and we worked so hard. I mean, it was such a meritocratous kind of culture where everyone was responsible for, you know, one or maybe two things. Um, There's a lot of autonomy. Um, We were really metrics driven, like all the things that are kind of expected now in a startup. Um, it was pretty, um, I, th- I think, unconventional back then. A, a lot of the lessons from 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 you know how how, how PayPal was ran. Um, I I would say that um, the thing that I really took away was that honestly, a small group of people really committed um, to something that they believe is a correct idea, even if the rest of the world doesn't see it, can really make. Um, a, a profound change. And, you know, these companies that have emerged like LinkedIn, Yelp, YouTube, SpaceX, Tesla, you know, Palantir, um, it's proof of that. Like it's, it, it you know, just, it, it really takes a strong belief in yourself and, 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 and finding a group of people who are willing to rally with you and working really hard at it. And, and the results can be quite good. It's, I know it's not, you know, your mileage may vary, but, um, Sometimes people have, like, the fear sets in and, and we're so inert and we don't do these things because we feel like we can't, because we feel powerless. And I think the f- experience of PayPal made me feel uh, more powerful than I actually um, probably deserve to feel. And that helped, that confidence helped, you know, in the formation of Kiva. Yeah, and, and when you talk about the formation of Kiva, you know, the companies that your peers created, which you mentioned, SpaceX, Palantir, LinkedIn, et cetera, those were for-profit companies. Mm-hmm. Kiva's a nonprofit. Can you walk us through why you decided to create Kiva as a nonprofit? Um, there's other fintech companies, particularly online lending platforms that are for profit. So kind of walk us through your thought process there and, and kind of how you see that now in today's environment and going forward. Yeah. So our mission is to connect people through lending to alleviate poverty. And when we looked at the market and we continue to ask ourselves this question, we think that there's actually, um, if something can be seen as profitable, there's plenty of commercial capital that will come in. But oftentimes there's so many places on the planet and so many communities and so many, um, you know, uh, kind of loans uh, that are seen as unprofitable. For example, here in the U.S., 70% of bank loans, uh, uh, small businesses that apply for a bank loan, they get rejected. 70% of them, right? That's like 8,000 rejections a day. There's so many people who are seen as unprofitable. And what we thought is instead of actually structuring ourselves as yet another for-profit, let's actually, where, you know, we're trying to actually compete with other investments and becoming overperforming investment, let's actually try to be an overperforming donation and really make, you know, the value of donations really, um, let, let's let's come up with something that, that's, that's pretty powerful. So our map of the space was, if we can prove a repayment track record in a population that was previously seen 
as you know not profitable, then the banks will come in, commercial capital will come in, and it'll really scale something up. And what we really need is that first-in risk capital to, 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 to take risks in places that people don't want to go. So when we work in Iraq right now, there's not many for-profit investors that want to invest in Iraq. When we were, you know, working and we continue to work and double down um, post Ebola in West Africa and Liberia and Sierra Leone, again, that spooks impact investors, let alone commercial investors, because, you know, it's just the investment profile that folks want. They want a return to principal. They want a 7% IRR. We have a system that targets a negative 10 to negative 20% IRR, but that's an overperforming donation because you're getting 80 cents on your dollar back. That's what I believe is there's a big market gap for that. Um, and the people who are participating in Kiva can be assured that, you know what, if they do get repaid, they're establishing a track record that hopefully helps local banks come in and actually scale up the lending because crowdfunding alone, um, it's just a drop in the bucket. We really need to get the markets working better for the poor. Yeah. So talk about, you talk about kind of paving the path for others to come in. I think when you think about investing, I, I think of it as a continuum from pure philanthropic dollars to financial first returns, because yeah. like you said, it, it's so important that somebody can come in and be that kind of right. risk capital, um, like you are. like you are. Um, talk, talk about some of the impact that you've had, because that, that's really how investors will probably measure their return on Kiva. Yeah, that's a great point. So for example, in Sierra Leone, uh, which you just talked about, there's an organization called Sloan Microfinance Trust, SMT. And Kiva, uh, because our money comes from the internet community at 0% interest, and there's a risk tolerance and a patience with that money because you get a personal connection with Kiva, we were able to invest in Sierra Leone in this group SMT when no other outside investors or even local banks were willing to actually back them. Now, SMT lends to people in rural areas, rural farmers, and that's seen as risky. Because Kiva's come in several years ago and made the first, you know, $100,000 loan and, and then they started paying that back, their farmers started paying that back and then Kiva lenders got repaid. Then we expanded that to $300,000 of a credit line from the Kiva website. Now it's up past $1 million. Other investors have now come in, right? And so what's really exciting is that we can help local institutions on the ground and local small businesses establish a repayment track record in a really public way on our on our crowdfunding website and that just just showing that can then basically be levered to get other investors to feel more comfortable um, we've we've done the same thing for example here in the United States there are a number of small businesses that cannot get a bank loan because they don't have three years of cash flows or sufficient credit scores that's what banks use yeah. to underwrite um, and say yes to you for a loan we have a character-based lending system where if 10 of your friends and family are willing to chip in 25 bucks a pop, then that's got to say something about the quality of your idea. Even if you don't have any cash flows, i.e. you're a brand new small business, like a push cart vendor that ha has no documented cash flows, or you know you don't have the credit score. And if your friends and family believe in you, then you can actually get uh, fully funded on the Kiva website from the crowds. And then as you repay, we build your repay, your credit score, and then that helps you get a loan from the mainstream banks. And so there's just so many examples of Kiva lenders being the first in risk-tolerant patient capital um, uh, that then establishes a repayment track record that then makes banks take notice. And we think that's a great way um, to really um, you know, scale, scale the impact. I mean, it sounds like then if, if you're saying that you guys are being the first capital in are enabling others to then come in after at significant size loan sizes greater um, are actually creating significantly more impact than the actual dollars that you've lent um, so it, I guess how do you measure that piece of it I mean how do you say well we've you know we've lent 915 million dollars right, right. Um, but in reality we've enabled, you know, X billions of dollars to in be lent as a result. Capital. Yeah, yeah. So I think the thing that we look at is, um, you know, where do we believe we're truly being catalytic, where there's no other um, kind of uh, sources of funds that would come to this person? Um, and then the other thing is just because we're causal to something scaling up doesn't mean that what's being scaled up is actually impactful, right? So, so Michael, kind of to make this really uh, concrete, just because you are now commercially viable for credit card companies to give you multiple offers doesn't mean that you should be using your credit card to finance your small business. Because credit cards to finance your small business could be a really high interest way. Um, and then your return on capital for your small business better be higher than your cost of capital, 25% on your credit card, let's say, 
for it to be a really good decision. So what we're trying to do, in addition to looking at the amount of follow-on capital coming in through Kiva, uh, because of Kiva, is actually what 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 loans do we have up on the website where there's evidence suggesting that this household that is borrowing is actually going to be making more money um, even after the interest payments on this loan. And so, for example, when it comes to farmers and agriculture, we know now that if a farmer can actually get a grace period on their loan, i.e. they don't have to you know, repay every month right away, but they can actually wait till the end of their harvest, sell their crops, get them get the market price they want, then turn around and repay that loan with a grace period, right? That that's better for the farmer, they can actually earn more money. These are the kinds of loans that the banks aren't doing yet. And so what we want to do is not only get banks to start doing something, but we want banks to do something where we know that the the that people are going to be much better off as a result of getting access to this capital. Um, where we are right now is we think about 35% of the loans on Kiva are truly catalytic, meaning that no other funder would touch it because of the perceived risk. So it's not 100%, it's only 35%. And then we feel like about a, about a 50% of our loans have an evidence-based uh, uh, attribute to it, where we can be highly confident that the income level is going to increase as a result of that person borrowing uh, on the Kiva website. It doesn't mean that in the other half of times the income level doesn't increase. It's just that we don't have a high degree of confidence because there's not strong evidence supporting that that loan would do it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, you know, multiply those two up, uh, together and you get about 15% of our loan, of, of the loans on our website are in this sweet spot of highly catalytic and um, evidence-backed in terms of increasing the income. And we'd like to improve that, that, that ratio over time. Yeah. So this podcast is all about humanizing finance. Mm -hmm. So, and you talk about some examples. So do you have any specific kind of stories about borrowers and and lenders as well Mm -hmm. um, on Kiva that, that just stand out as this is really the embodiment of our platform and what we've created? You know, one, one story is Victor, um, who um, is an entrepreneur here in San Francisco. Victor immigrated from Mexico about 12 years ago um, and had worked in a coffee shop and, and basically had always wanted to open up his own coffee shop. So he goes to take uh, training courses at the Mission Economic Development Agency. They're a nonprofit technical assistance provider. Victor shows up, does these business training classes. And after graduating from kind of, you know, getting this business training, um, you know, wants to kind of has some savings, borrow some money from folks in church and um, is about to complete the construction of his coffee shop. But he needs he had some uh, he needed about five, five, 10 K more to basically complete the construction. So he crowdfunds it on Kiva because his instructor um, saw how hard Victor worked in class and just based on Victor's character, showing up on time, um, doing his homework, just being a really good student, even if Victor didn't have previous cash flows and his credit score as an immigrant wasn't, you know, wasn't established, um, he, Victor's instructor vouches for Victor. So fast forward, that's in 2011. He gets crowdfunded from like 60 people on Kiva for a $5,000 loan. He pays back that first loan and gets another loan in 2013 for $10,000. Um, And this is now for his second coffee shop. So he really is a great entrepreneur. Now, fast forward to today. Victor is actually, he has a $1.5 million outstanding loan from one of the major banks and is on to his fourth coffee shop. So he's he's like a great entrepreneur. But because Victor has, has kind of repaid his loans on Kiva, he established his reputation as trustworthiness on the Kiva platform. So we now allow Victor to go vouch for people in his church. So he vouched for, for example, Rocio, who basically would bring a vacuum cleaner on the San Francisco bus in between, she's a house cleaner, between dropping her kids off at school and picking them up after work and then trying to go and visit all these clients around the city. She was missing client appointments. It was really hard. She needed to buy a car. Um, she found a used minivan for $3,000. Again, didn't have the, 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 the savings to go buy that, that business investment. But because Victor believed in her character and knows her, Victor vouches for her. Rocio then gets crowdfunded for that $3,000 loans, buys that, buys that used minivan, is cleaning more houses per day. Her revenues go up. She's able to you know, pick her kids up, drop, her, drop them off, and now has taken out a second loan of $10,000 
to expand her house cleaning business. So she's doing really well. Now, Rocio, because she's established her creditworthiness on the Kiva platform, we allow her to vouch for someone. So she's now vouched for Eva, who sells at Bay Area flea markets. And so there's this chain of trust as, as you repay, not only can you get access to greater, you know, bigger loans, essentially from Kiva, as well as from the Main Street banks, but then we allow you to turn around and vouch for someone in your community who's underserved by the financial system today. And part of the situation is, it's not that banks are bad, it's just that it's so costly to acquire a customer, a new borrower, a new small business um, in a community that you don't work in. And then to manage the risk of that, to go through if they don't have existing cash flows or credit scores, to get to know someone is really expensive too. And so banks aren't gonna bother. They're certainly not gonna bother doing sub $25,000 starter loans. This is where this character-based lending system, um, you know, um, and bringing kind of, um, you know, humanizing finance um, is just so important. And, and, you know, I tell these stories because my vision of the world, by the way, all these loans are at 0% interest um, uh, and PayPal is giving us free payment processing so we don't have any variable cost. Um, what I get excited about is this, if anyone worldwide gets declined for a bank loan who's trying to start a small business, that they then basically go to Kiva. And if their friends and family believe in them and are willing to invest a little bit, then we open it up to the crowds and they'll get crowdfunded and then they build their repayment track record as they're successful. And then they basically can prove to local banks that they are credit worthy. Yeah. What's fascinating about this character-based lending, um, this way of doing character-based lending is that you're almost creating a different kind of credit score. Um, in some senses. So, so how do you think about that going forward? I mean, is there any way to standardize this process? Maybe not kind of internationally, but, but with at least within a community or in each community? Yeah, Michael, I think that's a, you know, could we create like a community credit score? So you have a financial credit score that's based on, you know, a, a number of factors, kind of the number of different credit lines you have and your re on-time repayment performance. But what about like how your friends and family feel about your character? And if offered credit, their estimation of your ability to repay on time. Could we create some kind of standard community credit score that could be appended to your financial credit score so that, you know, Experian, TransUnion, Equifax essentially could somehow have, I don't know, is there something there? And I think some companies are looking into this. There's Lendo, for example, that try to look at your social graph and what your social graph says about you. So if you have friends that, for example, went to these colleges, Perhaps that correlates to you being a better credit bet than others. Um, you know, our way of doing it is we're not looking at the, we're not trying to assess the quality of your friends. We're just trying to see, can you get 10 to 15 of your friends to actually invest $25 in you? Which, you know, is not that much money per person, but um, if you can get that many people, one, that's a sign of entrepreneurial hustle because yeah. it's not easy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you're going to need that kind of hustle if you're going to make your business work. Yeah. And two is, um, you know, uh, you're going to feel kind of sheepish asking people if you don't really believe, if, if you don't feel like you, you've kind of figured out your business yet. How often has there been a case where um, you've done this character-based lending exercise and you know, the, kind of this 10 to 15 people in your community um, pony up and lend? How often has it been the case where um, somebody has either not been able to pay back or defaulted on their payment? Yeah, so right now um, in the U.S. where we're running this character-based lending scheme, uh, right now the repayment rate is about 89%. Wow. So that compares to small business you know, lending portfolio repayment rates of probably 94%, 93%. So it's not that far behind. And again, we're starting where the markets fail. These are people who can't get access to the bank loans because they don't have the credit scores and the cash flows. So I think it's great. Now, I think this fundamental kind of the reason why is because people don't want to default on their friends when people believe in you. Um, and so even if your small business isn't doing well, people are repaying that loan. Um, they, they might reschedule the repayments, but they're willing to repay that loan because they want to make good on people's belief in them. Um, you know, I think kind of the, 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 there's a really good question, just going back to like, is there some way to move this off of the Kiva platform and make this similar to how eBay had a feedback rating system? You know, could that be portable somehow? Um, and so in addition to, again, your financial credit score, it, could there be some kind of portable community credit score that um, the underbanked, um, you know, could, could, could use um, on, on platforms that are broader than Kiva? I think it's something we should think about. 
Yeah, that would be that would be really fascinating to see. I mean, you have all this social information, whether it's through Facebook, people communicate through Facebook, through all these chat messaging apps, right. um, just online with their online activity. I, it seems like there could be something, and, and you obviously have an interesting background for that, PayPal, eBay, um, where it feels like you'd be able to kind of figure something like that out. Yeah, and you know, there are new models. Uh, one of the co-founders of Kiva, Matt Flannery, went on to find uh, found a new company called Branch, um, uh, and some similar category is Inventure, funded by Shivani Saroya, who just did a really wonderful TED Talk looking at how the data on one's mobile phone, so the number of contacts, um, basically building a machine learning program that parses your text messages and the number of contacts to see if that's predictive of, of, of creditworthiness. Um, and this has been really powerful in the context in Kenya where you can actually reach people through the M-Pesa I know this is kind of pretty detail, kind of inside baseball fintech stuff, but what's really exciting is that there's all sorts of new information that can be brought to bear on someone's character that is not captured in the financial algorithms of crash cash flows and credit scores. And I think we're just at the beginning stages of this. And, and I think to, to, yeah. to add to that point, I mean, there are so many people that are underbanked. Yeah. Not, not just unbanked, but underbanked because yeah. they're not served by traditional financial institutions where, where people like where firms like Kiva and, and lenders on Kiva's platform can fill that gap. Um, what, one interesting thing as well is in the in, in this kind of humanization of finance stories that you mentioned is that um, you're talking about stories in the U.S. Kiva obviously started out um, in emerging markets, right. um, but there are also working poor in the U.S. And so to talk about why, why not just stick to emerging markets? Why come to the U.S. as well? Um, what that's done for the organization? Uh, yeah, great question. You know, the, uh, we entered the United States post-financial um, crisis. Uh, there was the credit crunch, if you remember, back in 2008. Banks um, really froze their lending to small businesses. Uh, and we had people writing into our customer service saying, hey, look, it's great that Kiva's helping people abroad, but what about right here? Um, and and we looked into it and we found that small businesses um, create two out of every three jobs here in the mm-hmm. U.S. And 70% of small businesses that apply for a bank loan get rejected. And so, you know, if these are the job creators, we have a, you know, we have a 16% poverty rate in this country. Um, and, and, you know, if you're black owned or Hispanic owned business, you're three times more likely to get rejected from a bank loan. Like, it's just, I mean, you know, that we looked at kind of what was going on right here in our backyard here in the U S and we said, look, um, the work that we're doing out abroad is commendable and we need to, um, pay attention here locally. And there's an opportunity here locally that we didn't have abroad, which is in Rwanda, um, you know, the women that you might lend to in a, in a borrowing group might not yet be online. Um, uh, but we're on the right side of a trend in our lifetime. They will become online, but not, not quite yet. So, but here in the U.S., there are people who get rejected from a bank loan, but they can still open up a Facebook account. So they're financially excluded, but they're digitally included. And so there's a lot of room for experimentation. Um, in our case, we did a direct lending model. Instead of going through a microfinance intermediary like we would in Rwanda, yeah. we can go direct to that small business like Victor and Rocio and Eva, help them set up a PayPal account, and the money goes directly from you, the Kiva lender, right to their PayPal account. And through doing this, we can basically drop the interest rate tremendously. I mean, we do it at 0% interest, and it's a yeah. 0% interest starting loan product. And what I'd love to see is that if we can pioneer a model of risk management, right, this character-based lending model and crowdfunding in the U.S. to allow direct connections um, with people uh, at sub-10% interest, then we can actually then expand this to other countries. And instead of just going through microfinance institutions who on-lend the Kiva lender capital at an interest rate that I still think is high but still cheaper than the village money lender, mm-hmm. we could go direct to small businesses, say in Mexico, who today pay 80% to a local microfinance institution, we could do it at sub 10%, sub 15%, save poor people a lot of money. And when you do that, that leaves poor people much better off. And that's what we're, you know, that's what we're trying to do in our mission to alleviate poverty. Yeah. And you talk about leaving poor people a lot better off. You're a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. You don't take origination fees. You don't take a cut of the loan. Right. Um, So how do you guys get paid? We run on tips. Uh, so when you go to a, a restaurant and you tip a waiter an extra, say, 15%, that's a big part of how that uh, waiter kind of covers their bills, right? And 
we realized as an internet public goods, uh, similar to say Wikipedia, um, you know, if people lend a hundred bucks and then give us an extra dollar or two as a tip, just to cover our OPEX, um, given the number of transactions that are happening on Kiva, the number of Kiva lenders, that could add up to a lot, especially if we stay lean as a nonprofit, lever volunteers, lever software to really, um, you know, uh, do things that, um, you know, in a much more kind of efficient way than kind of nonprofits might have typically done. And so last year, these one and two dollar tips totaled ten million dollars. And that covered two thirds of our operating budget of $15 million uh, annually. And again, we work in you know, 80 plus countries and it's through a huge group of volunteers. We have at any given point in time, about 500 volunteers at Kiva, folks roaming around the planet doing audits and verification to make sure that the money that is you know, supposed to go to this person actually really reached that through random sampling. We have a whole core of um, volunteer editors and translators who ensure that each loan profile that's posted, say in Spanish or in Arabic, can actually be readable in English. Um, and that you know, um, essentially all these people have come together to kind of um, ensure that there's the trust in the system works. And when, there, when you can get the trust right in a, in a marketplace like Kiva, similar to eBay, then all this opportunity opens up for people to do good. Mm-hmm. I guess you must have some happy customers if you're getting a lot of tips. So you know, it's, it's, it's kind of this unusual situation where if we try to charge, say, one or two percent, um, uh, that would actually be, you know, uh, well, this year we'll do $150 million in loans and one to two percent of that, you know, it's kind of that's, you know, less than three million bucks, right? But um, by making it voluntary, we're collecting $10 million. Does that make sense? So there's something around like letting people choose what they want to give you based on, you know, the value they see and not nickeling, diming or kind of doing all these hidden fees. And we think, you know, um, we think, uh, you know, that this is a way in some ways of optimizing the revenues itself. Yeah, well, what's interesting about that is that you're letting people choose the value Right. of what they believe Kiva to be and the value of what they're doing on your platform. Um, you know, and so let's just reimagine finance for a second. So let's just you know, take this tips feature. There's obviously so much talk um, in financial services about financial services firms and financial institutions charging much more than they should to the end consumer. And in some senses, um, you know, kind of that being unfair to the end consumer. So what, what, what if for-profit financial services firm operated on a tips feature? Um, and had customers pay what they believe, kind of in a reimagination of financial services, how how would you think about that? Yeah, you know, and I think some groups are are trying this um, uh, aspiration, Aspiration for example. Absolutely. And I'm really excited. Here's what I think um, we need to focus on first is the cost side and innovations on the cost side. And as a financial service institution, how can we use technology? How can we use workflow innovation? In Kiva's case, we, we have access to, you know, the crowds and a number of volunteers to really bring down the cost of our operations to a point where if we then ran on a pain of voluntary way, um, it, you know, you could actually get close to sustainability. I think, uh, you know, my sense is that if you're going to go out and, you know, create the same cost structure with brick and mortar branches and, and, and all of that stuff, um, you know, I don't know, to, to be honest, if Wells Fargo, um, for example, or Bank of America said, hey, pay what you feel like paying. I don't know if they'd be able to sustain their cost structure and certainly kind of, you um, uh, you know, uh, make the yields um, that they're kind of make the returns that their shareholders expect. But if you can innovate on cost, it gives you so much more freedom to do something creative around pricing and fees. And in Aspirations case, from what I understand, you know, you choosing what you think is fair makes me love them even more. And that's the, that's the possibility, right? You know, how do we create a system? How do we innovate on the cost side, such that it gives us the freedom to do something that is so fresh and new that it makes me love the company more. I mean, that's a real win uh, all, all across the board. Well, what you're really getting at is the, is the customer experience. Right. And it sounds like on both the borrower and the lender side, the customer experience is decidedly better, which yeah. it's a lot of fintechs are aspiring to, to be and to do. Um, on, we haven't talked much about the lender side. What Talk about the lender experience on your platform and, and you know, I guess why they obviously feel so strongly about Kiva that they're giving tips in excess of what, um, you know, what you might get otherwise from them. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I mean, the, the, if you talk to the Kiva lenders out there, you know, I think their comparison point is how there are other places to donate. And when you donate, typically, 
Um, especially if you're just an everyday Joe, right? Like you don't really connect with where that money goes. Um, so there's not much of a personal connection. It could go to pay for building expenses. You don't really know. Um, you don't feel valued that $25 or $100 is going to make much of a difference because, um, you know, the organizations sometimes are so big. And then there's oftentimes not real feedback loops around the impact. And so Kiva is, you know, kind of superior along all those dimensions, right? We personalize the experience. You get to read through profiles and stories of entrepreneurs. Um, second, you know, a, 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 we have a small, you know, it's 25 bucks, you know, and everyone feels like there's their bit counts and you get to see all these other people kind of chump, jump in on the loan and fully fund it. And the thermometer, you know, I guess to hundred percent on that $250 loan request. It feels really good. Like your $25 feels proportionately impactful on some other human being. Uh, and that, that feels good. And the third is the feedback loops, which is the biggest part, which is, you know, in addition to getting repaid, which is unbelievable because then you can turn around and then kind of there's an incredible leverage. You can relend that money. You know that something must have worked because that person was able to repay you that you picked. And that is so special. In addition to that, getting an email update about, you know, the small business in, you know, Cambodia, the, 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 the seamstress that you backed. That's just a really special thing to get in the middle of your day. So I think for all these reasons... Um, you know, versus the way um, kind of the kind of the, the the set of philanthropic options people have, Kiva was pretty differentiated, and people want to then support um, the expansion of it. Well, something that seems really cool about the platform as a lender and that lender experience, um, and gets to humanizing finance, is that you actually get to see the story behind the person you're lending to, yeah. who you're lending to, what it means, did they repay, and you have a connection that seems to be greater than just, I'm lending money through a bank or a platform. Yeah, you know, it's, it's um, I think what makes life meaningful um, and is, is just our connection to, to each other and our connection to something bigger than ourselves. And, you know, um, Kiva is a way, it's not the only way, but it's a way, um, you know, um, if, if you're really busy to kind of come in at the end of a bad day and know you made a difference in someone else's life and read their story, be a part of it. And it's not a sad story. It's a story about entrepreneurism and hope. And it's reframing, you know, the working poor as entrepreneurs and people who have strategies to get ahead and they just need to kind of have access to resources to do that. And, um, and so my sense is that, you know, just as when we dream at night, we dream about human beings. We don't dream about numbers. We don't dream about, you know, concepts. We dream about humans, right? That's the way a human mind is. A, a website that humanizes, you know, not only philanthropy, but really finance, um, that's going to appeal to a lot of people because, you know, that's that's just how we're built as, as, as people. And that's what's going to make life meaningful. So, you know, we got a long ways to go. We 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 want to make the, the the experience even richer, moving from reading stories to maybe, you know, not only seeing a video like you might on Kickstarter, but actually having conversations with people using, you know, something like Skype or or whatever the latest kind of two way communication uh, is. And we'd have to figure out language. We'd have to figure out time zones. There's all sorts of things still to figure out. But that's what this platform is about is you know, going back to the mission, connect people through lending to alleviate poverty, that connecting of people um, in ways that, you know, uh, don't happen today, where you can have a relationship with someone in West Africa and be their backer is pretty cool. And we want to make that experience even richer. No, that's, that's fantastic. And you're kind of getting at, you know, some of the lessons that you've learned from Kiva. And I guess, what are some of those key lessons you've learned? And what would you say to aspiring fintech entrepreneurs for sure, but even entrepreneurs more broadly? Yeah, uh, great question. Well, you know, I think um, one is just the importance of feedback loops and making sure that the product that you have has short feedback loops. I think one of the reasons why Kiva really s spread is when people started getting repayments in their email, they were like, wow, this thing works. And then they started telling other people. Um, so to the extent that you can think about a product, um, it just almost seems, you know, obvious, but, you know, when you're designing something, um, you know what's the what's the what's the payoff for per, for 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 folks, and is it, you know, is it is it frequent enough, and is it meaningful enough for people to really love it? Um, and you know um, that Skinnerian pull lever get pellet, like you know this is just how we are, and um, people talk about it, you know, in terms of creating addictive experiences, and we want to do more around making social good or philanthropy addictive. That would be amazing. So that's something that we've thought a lot about, and I'd encourage anyone 
thinking about developing a, a compelling product to think about the feedback loops, the frequency and the meaningfulness of it. I would say the second thing is, um, you know, we, the, again, this feels obvious now in retrospect, but there's so many debates that we settle by just experimenting, you know, the tip feature that we talked about, yep. you know, we could have, we could have done all these brainstorms on different revenue ideas, but we just put it out there and we put it out there before the first time we were on TV um, uh, we were on this PBS Frontline World episode, which up until that point, no one was coming to our website. And then when we were on this episode, our website crashed for four days. But when it came back up, we had the tips feature in place. And that was basically our Series A, you know, like, um, <laughs> thank God we had implemented yeah. that. Otherwise, yeah. we didn't have a revenue stream. Um, and so, you know, so much can be settled through basically, um, you know, just getting, you know, stop the debate um, and, and figure out kind of what you want to test get it out there. Again, it's so obvious now, but, um, uh, you know, I, I, I can think of a lot of entrepreneurs that I, I mentor or talk to who somehow they're asking for advice where I'm like, just go test it, you know? And if you can't figure out a cheap way to test it, then like, look at that issue. Um, like what's going on there. Um, I think a third thing is, you know, the, the building a board is kind of an interesting experience, um, for profit or nonprofit. A lot of, a lot of people scratch their heads around like, how do you get a lot of value out of boards? And I'd say one thing to look for is for people, this is really special to me, who, who believe in your potential as a company and as an entrepreneur, even when you don't believe in it, that can be really useful um, at, 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 at times of, you know, um, great trial. So I just, just, you know, there's a lot of lessons. Uh, I think entrepreneurs have taken a lot more time and thought in kind of encapsulating that, but those are some three top of mind for me. Those are great. Um, and that's actually a great lead into some, some quick hit questions to just close sure. out the interview. So who's been your biggest mentor? Well, I'd say Reid Hoffman, um, uh, the founder of LinkedIn, uh, who's on our board. He's uh, kind of an old mentor from uh, the PayPal days for me. Um, he's just been uh, with us every step of the way at Kiva. He's just been so helpful um, uh, in terms of really distilling kind of um, the key issue. And, you know, I've talked to him at, at, at different points. Um, and what, what, what surprised me is, you know, um, how, how macro he can be about things and how that can give me perspective on, you know, what we're trying to get done. What, what keeps you up at night? Um, well, I wish, I wish our pace, uh, sometimes were faster, but I'm, again, I'm trying to shift to, you know, this is a marathon, not a sprint. I think I need to kind of, as we go into year 11, uh, get more comfortable with that, uh, to some degree. Uh, I can't keep optimizing for the new. I have to optimize for a degree of stability and a continuation of the current model and, and making sure that we optimize that thing. Um, I would say kind of more broadly, you know, um, I feel like the pace at which we're all moving in financial inclusion, it's good, but it's not great. You know, in Kenya, three-fourths of adults use the M-Pesa mobile payment system every day. But why isn't mobile payments here everywhere on the planet? You know, I mean, you can take the friction out of reaching people who are at the end of a dirt road. But, you know, um, it's it's still not spreading as fast as I would imagine. And, and I wonder why. Um, so I, I think we need to continue to figure out how we get, you know, the best talent in on, 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 you know, problems that really matter, um, like financial inclusion, um, like education and, and accelerate, uh, things that are just obvious and are working in, in pockets of places on the planet, but not, not everywhere. That's great. And then what, what's the saying that you live by? The point of life is to give back from a place of feeling full. That's fantastic. I think that's a great way to cap this interview. So we couldn't get him to do the warm dance, but we did have Pramal Shah humanize finance. Thanks so much, Pramal. Thanks, Michael. It was a pleasure. Great to have you. Mm-hmm.